My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) It's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. It's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't get away because everything is just fine. What are we going to do about fast fashion? I've lately been thinking that we're entering a new phase of fast fashion fatigue. Where we're all just getting a bit over excessive consumption. We're a bit bored with the relentless push for new stuff all the time. But... I might be wrong. I'm recording this intro just as Inditex, which owns Zara, has reported a 9% rise in their first half yearly profits. We're still shopping up an absolute storm. So, hmm, perhaps closing the loop on textile production will provide the answer. So if fast fashion stops using virgin resources, maybe it won't need to slow down. I'm not really sure about that one. What do you think? But what I do know is that the topic of fast fashion and its effects on people and planet is one that's becoming more popular. When I first started working in this space, uh, perhaps four years ago, it was still quite niche, but that has definitely changed. Need proof? Look no further than this week's episode, which was recorded in September at one of the live Q&A events at the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas in Melbourne. It's a discussion about fast fashion between four panellists and an audience, which was absolutely packed. So there's a real appetite for this stuff. We touch on a whole lot of issues from slow fashion, overconsumption and waste, to what brands are doing about supply chain transparency, as well as the Modern Slavery Act, and even body mapping technology and the role of magazines. The session was hosted by journalist Madeline Morris, and I'm on the panel along with sustainable textiles expert Clara Vuletic, Rebecca Hard, who is the CEO of Australian high street brand Suzanne, and Jessica Perrin, who I just met and she's great. She is one of the co-founders of the UK-based ethical fashion shopping app Not My Style. And we all thought it was a cool opportunity to broaden the conversation even further by sharing this with you on the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I'd love you to comment and share on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. On Instagram, you can find me at Mrs. Press, Clara at Clara Vuletich, V-U-L-E-T-I-C-H, Suzanne at Suzanne Fashion, and there are two S's in Suzanne, and Not My Style is on Instagram at Not My Style UK. And you can also tag the Wheeler Centre, which is at Wheeler Centre, W-H-E-E-L-E-R. 
While I'm here talking about sharing, I'd love to take this opportunity just to remind you that this podcast thrives on sharing. It's my big thing to extend the conversation around sustainable and ethical fashion and to get people talking about the way the fashion system operates. The questions that I raise, you know, the big stuff from what is fashion for to what does it do, who makes our clothes, where, how, from what – All that stuff is about engaging you in conversation. So I would be over the moon if you would share, tell your friends, subscribe in iTunes, and also consider leaving me a review or rating in iTunes. That really helps get the word out about this podcast and it helps us find new listeners. So I'd be super grateful. So what is fast fashion? At an elementary level, it's the way in which brands and designers can rush product from the design room to the shop floor in record time. So we used to drop fashion seasonally, autumn, winter, spring, summer. But now you'll see new drops in stores in as little as a week, sometimes even a few days. So fast refers to the speed of consumption at which we're gobbling up fashion these days. But it also refers to the speed with which we get rid of stuff. Increasingly, we're buying clothes to throw them away. Australians send an estimated $500 million of clothing to landfill each year. We're also the second highest consumers of textiles and fashion per capita after North America. What happens when you go too fast? Why does it matter? Should we be slowing down? I think you'll find some answers in the Q&A that follows. So without further ado, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Madeleine Morris. I should introduce myself. My full-time job is I'm a reporter for 7.30 on the ABC. I'm currently on maternity leave, which is why I don't have anything that's ironed in my wardrobe. Um, And I'll introduce the rest of the panel. So Jessica Perrin is the co-founder of the Not My Style app, which is a British-based app, but she'll be able to tell you a little bit more about it. It rates transparency of fashion labels and their working conditions, and she's worked in the development area for over a decade all across the world. Rebecca. Rebecca Hart is the CEO of Suzanne and we thank you very much for being here and stumping up because you're probably going to get most of the um, (laughs) difficult questions this evening. (laughs) So well done for coming. Um, Dr. Clara Vuletic is a sustainable fashion consultant and she has worked with H&M, David Jones and many others. She's also recently back from London, so is Jess, relatively recently. And Claire Press is Marie Claire's fashion editor at large uh, and she is the author of Wardrobe crisis, how we went from Sunday best to fast fashion. And she also presents the podcast Wardrobe Crisis. You don't look like you're having a wardrobe crisis. You're looking very good. And her book will be on sale later on tonight and she's very happy to um, sign copies. So I just want to ask a question of each of you to sort of get the ball rolling. Clara, I'll start with you. So how big was the Rana Plaza collapse in sort of changing how everyone thinks about fast fashion and what changes have you seen in the decade or so that you've been working in this area? Well, it was huge that, you know, what happened in 2013 with over a 1,000 people losing their lives in, in Bangladesh. I mean, I guess from my personal point of view, it came a little bit too late in some ways. I mean, I got into this in London. I trained as a printer textile designer after leaving Australia and, you know, in the sort of mid-2000s, 2005, six, as a graduate or, or even in my sort of my degree while I was studying textile design, I guess 
I really started to investigate what was going on and it came from a very personal point of view of actually learning to print and dye textiles and I realised that the environmental impacts were huge just literally for me to dye some textiles. I was getting, you know, real chemical reactions and there was so much stuff going down the sink. So I had this kind of real epiphany of... You know, if this is what's happening at a very craft level, what's happening at a global level with the textile industry? And then I did a lot of reading and started going to a lot of conferences. But what I really began to see was you had these two huge different sectors. You had the fashion industry, which was this huge behemoth. And then you had, at that point, a lot of bit players. You had a lot of people who were from the NGO sector who were starting to really raise awareness. You know, I remember going to these conferences in London around sort of ethical textiles and you had the guy who was from Pesticide Action Network who was, you know, some guy who'd worked in Africa with cotton farms and he was there literally with these thongs on. And these were all kind of people on the edges. And I remember really realising we were never going to get these people to talk to the fashion industry. And obviously I'd also been in the fashion industry working and come outside and gone into education and even all the industry conferences nobody was talking about this but you know over time then you started to get I think 2011 you had a Greenpeace report about the toxic impacts in China from textiles so there was then a growing kind of awareness particularly around environmental impacts and what also happened was a lot of the sportswear brands like Adidas and Nike I think what people don't realise is they were the ones who were really starting to make changes primarily because their customer was into the outdoor lifestyle and in some ways their brand ethics were around you know making environmental improvements so they and they also have always been innovative with material so they started to innovate around sustainability and choose better fabrics um, really innovate around bamboo and sort of a sustainable material so it was happening a lot in the sportswear and outdoor industry and it was still not happening with fast fashion but we've now seen probably in the last four to five years you know H&M are typically always talked about as the fast fashion brand who have finally realized and they've woken up and they're starting a kind of a strategy that's really starting to pioneer things in terms of the mass market. Is that your view as well, Claire? Do you think that the world is starting to wake up, has woken up? I mean, how would you rate it? Slowly crawling Mm. out of a slumber. Right. And listening to Clara Mm. there, I'm going, yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talk about that disconnect that operated back when you were seeing the Pesticide Action Network being ignored by big fashion. Big fashion is still... Generally, I think, ignoring this conversation to an extent. Rana Plaza was the, we often talk about it as the disaster that had to happen, Mm. like a watershed moment that you couldn't ignore because if you know that an industry that you either work in and love or admire or just simply buy from is Mm. even possibly culpable in a story of the death of 1,134 people, you're going to have, it's a wake-up call, you're going to think. But... The broader conversation is still in its early stages, because I think. The, the key word there is know, if you know. And do you think that many people don't know? Or yes. is ignorance bliss we don't want to know? That's such an interesting question. I think it's both. Um, I talk a lot to students and younger people and it's very surprising to me when I do come across young women who, women in particular, but 
of all genders, but particularly younger women who love to buy new clothes on the weekend or love to shop in fast fashion shops. There's a lot of them who don't know about the issues that underpin this industry. I think the message still isn't getting out there. I think we do need to keep telling it. And sometimes I feel like a broken record, like who made your clothes, where, how, and from what, which is the battle cry of Fashion Revolution, which is a campaign that began after Rana Plaza, a global non-for-profit campaign designed to raise awareness. I feel like I say it a lot, but actually it falls on new ears often. So I think we've still got a long way to go. And the other thing I'd say is I think it can be an opportunity. I'll try and look at this from a positive perspective, otherwise people like you say, don't want to know. So, Rebecca, I mean, Suzanne, you are a major high street yes. brand in yep. Australia. Mm-hmm. You've got a B yes. from the Baptist yes. into working yes. conditions, yep. which is not bad. Mm-hmm. So tell us about what you do as mm-hmm. a brand mm-hmm. to ensure sustainable fashion and also good yeah. ethical standards in your production line. As a retailer, we need to be quite accountable. We actually are the ones that do interact with our supply chain and our factories. And I took on this role about four years ago in our business. And so it was a, I'd come from the retail side where I used to sell and out in stores and, you know, had all that great fun with buying clothes and selling clothes to customers. But when I took on the CEO role and just going out and meeting our vendors, it's really important that we take accountability for that as a brand. Because, you know, I think to the girl's point, it is really hard for customers to understand. It was such an eye-opener for me going up to China and, and really understanding that whole process. And, you know, I at the end of... Uh, oh my God, what are we doing type way? Or? No, really positive. You know, up in China, China's one of the most expensive, outside of countries such as Australia and America and the UK, it's one of the most expensive countries now to produce in and we still do produce a lot of our product up in China. But the factories, or the factories we deal with in particular, are actually highly mechanised, we're quite innovative, but it is really important you have long-standing relationships with those factories as well because they're not going to innovate and they're not going to try and look after their work and provide really good conditions if you don't actually support them in the long term. So I do think it's a bit of a two-way street and it is really important to get up and listen to the factory managers and the owners and understand what their challenges are. And a lot of the factories up there also provide, you know, housing conditions and living conditions for their factory workers for quite a period of the year. So for us, it is really important to really make sure that we're getting up and seeing those factories, seeing the workers and making sure we're making the right decision. And how much pressure do you feel from consumers to be doing that? Are you trying to lead first and the consumers will follow or Um, has it been the reverse? Yeah, I think we've sort of always felt really, it's been really important to us as a brand to have a really ethical focus on our sourcing. And as I said, we've got factories we have worked with for 30 years, but it's we've gone on, I guess, a journey with those factories and really understanding what it is that there have been their challenges along the way. The Chinese government's also taking a massive focus in relation to pollution, and they're actually closing dye houses and those sorts of places, just mandatory to actually make sure that those environmental issues are improving. But that also creates other issues as well, and you need to be really supportive as a retailer of, of your factories and your mills and making sure that you're understanding what they're going through and then still being supportive. Um, so Jess, you're more at the consumer end, I suppose, in, and the technological ways that we're actually seeing innovation coming to answer some of these questions that we have. So tell us about Not My Style and its genesis and what you're actually, how it works. So Not My Style, for those who haven't heard of it, and a lot of you probably haven't because it's largely UK based. So it's an app that you can download on your iPhone from the Apple store and it tells you 
on your GPS map, when you're out shopping, on Swanson Street, on Oxford Street in London, which shops are around you and how they have been rated in terms of how transparent they are about their supply chain. I have done the ratings with my co-founders and a number of other volunteers, and we give a red, amber, green. Red, stop. Amber, think, green, shop. It's a very simple rating made by me for you guys. We don't profess to be experts in fast fashion. In fact, I don't profess to be an expert in fashion by any means, but I am someone who, funnily enough, likes to wear clothes. And I want to make sure that when I'm buying my clothes, I know where they came from. And the impetus, I guess, for not my style and where it came from is it's quite nice, actually, because I was, you guys, in an audience um, speaking to a panel about ethical fashion and supply chains. And me and my co-founder, one of the co-founders were sitting next to each other and there were some big brands on this stage and there were some really powerful voices who were working in the ethical fashion space. And we stood up and said, it's all very well and good. We know people are doing good things. Like, that's great. We're happy to see it moving forward. Can you just tell us where we can buy clothes? Like, just give me a couple of brands. Throw them at me. I want to know. Silence. And so that's where Not My Style was born. We named Not My Style about 10 minutes after that conversation, whispering to each other in the seat where we were like, we have to change this and we have to do something. What year was that, sorry? End of 2014. So we crafted the idea, we got another co-founder on board and in 2015 we launched a crowdfunding app and we raised £25,000 to build what is Not My Style. It launched this year in the App Store after many long sleepless nights, millions of ratings. We wanted to be really fair, we wanted to be transparent and more importantly we wanted you to be able to do the rating as well so we've rated over a hundred high street brands but you can also take the rating off our website have a look at it on the app and do it for brands that we haven't done or you can ask us to do it for you so the idea for us was just to put the information in consumers hands while they're out walking down the street and thinking oh gosh I've got that meeting tomorrow I'm going to need something new that I'm going to wear or I've got that party on Saturday night decisions are made on the impulse with fashion so often so we wanted to be there with you which is why it's GPS located so you can kind of like pop it up and it's going to be like H&M's over there, they're a green and not my style. Whatever other shop is over there and you can see around you where you can go nice, quick and easy. That and was the what's, point. And what's been the feedback? For, has it actually changed consumer patterns? So that's what yeah. we're starting to I mean, to not learn. on a growth, you yeah. wouldn't expect it like on a mega yeah. scale, but from the feedback of... Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> the our ultimate goal is sure. that we start to see consumers changing the way they behave. And I think we're, we're realists as well. We did not come to this to see everybody buying completely only ethical. It's, it's not realistic and it's not going to happen, but more thinking consciously about who they're buying from and actually feeling comfortable to go into Zara and say, hey, do you know where this was made and what are your supply chain practices? Because we want to see those conversations happening more and more. So the research is not in yet. We can't test the data to see how that's happening, but that's our long-term goal. Okay. Do we have any questions to to start off with? Fantastic. So um, why don't we start that one in the middle and then there's uh, this one up the front. Thanks. Should I stand up? Yes, please. We're just going to check out what you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I should have thought more this morning. Um, you said that H&M got a green so you can go ahead and shop. My question is, is H&M's business model really, really going to work with ethical production? Because essentially they work on the basis of low prices and not particularly great quality materials and frequent turnover. So how does that really work with ethical fashion? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. You've worked with H&M, Clara. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, that was always the elephant in the room for me, which, you know, I know when I, was, I went into my engagement with them, it was um, I had heard a rumour about them wanting to double their profits in five years. So, you know, it's like, 
how's that going to fit with this? Mm. I mean, I, I wouldn't dare to obviously speak for them, but clearly as a model, there's a huge challenge here. What I can say is that from what I'm seeing that they're investing in and focusing on, I'm imagining what they're visioning for the future is what they're calling a closed-loop textile system. So we talk a lot in the research I've done around this idea that there's slow and fast rhythms in fashion. So not everyone is fast fashion. Obviously, there's different sectors and there's different types of brands who have different... You know, they bring out certain amounts of collections per year. And H&M, I think, are aiming to essentially create a kind of model where the clothes are designed and produced and brought to the shop, as you said, within a few weeks. Um, They're designed to be bought a lot and to be maybe worn for a very short amount of time. But what they're trying to do possibly is to encourage the consumer for us to bring back the garments. So the customer brings back the garment and H&M have got bins in their shops currently, I think, in Australia. I know in Sweden and the UK. And And you can bring back garments that are not from H&M. That are not H&M, basically use them as recycling bins for your garments. And what do do they then do with that? So, yeah, they've got um, a plan to be able to completely chemically recycle all these garments down and re-spin yarn and then make clothes from 100% recycled textiles. And we as retailers can source fabrications now that are fully recycled garments. So, in some ways, there's this idea that maybe the fast fashion, maybe as a model it's fine, but if Mm. if we can completely recycle and it keeps Mm. going around in this closed loop. But does that not have environmental impacts in and of itself? It's yeah, less though, no, it? but there's actually, yeah, it's from an yeah. energy perspective, it's, yeah. there's less carbon emissions yeah. from yeah. using recycled yeah. materials. Yeah. It's definitely better. H&M, I mean, exactly as Clara says, the elephant in the room is overproduction, but they do pour money into R&D, into this idea of closing the loop. Yes. I'm going to talk about denim on denim because it's rad and it's Australian, it's so which I cool. love. Just um, <laughs> H&M have this thing called the Global Change Award, but what they do is they select from various contenders these scientific-based innovations that might be able to solve this problem of closing the loop. And one of the five finalists for this year's award was the Frontier. Frontier yeah, they're called Institute. the Centre for Frontier Materials. They're re-dyeing denim using old denim. Mm-hmm. Fine powder. They pulverise mm-hmm. yeah. them into like fine, fine powder, which can then be fired using an inkjet printery thing. That's technological. But then it basically becomes the pigment, so you can dye so undyed they, denim with right. old denim. Recolouring. Right. Okay. So they're so that's a, that's a true fully closed loop in that case. It, it could be, yeah. It could be, yeah. okay. So how far away is that sort of, just to finish yeah. your question and, and sort of take it to its logical end, how far away is that? From being a reality in H&M? Um, well, I mean, in theory, it's great, but I think it's five to ten years. Because you've got... When you think about... Um, all their garments will be made from all different kind of specs. You know, you'll have polycotton mixes, you'll have some linen, so you'll have some denim cotton. So all of those require these chemical recycling processes. Just a quick and question. Is it better for the environment to buy cotton and linen than polyester? Or what would you say... Uh, it's so complex. That's, there's no easy answer and question. Depends how the garment's going to be used okay, and what yes. you can do with it at the end. But recycling is easier for the natural fibres, correct? N- no. 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 This is the irony. Polyester is the one fibre at the moment yes. we can completely recycle. Mm. Yep. Okay. And we can buy recycled polyester. 
right. great factory called Teijin in Japan. Okay. So the blends are the things that have been the challenge and the cotton and the linens the challenge. But we've also, we're seeing a Swedish company who are about to be able to recycle cotton so that it's recycled and respun to a quality that we as fashion consumers want to wear, because at the moment, when you have recycled cotton, it's all lumpy and terrible. Okay, so. that was a slightly tangential question of mine, but um, one that I hope will be useful. Yes, the next question, thanks. Yeah, we, we hear a lot these days about uh, things like slow food, slow travel. I'd like to maybe hear your thoughts of the panelists on slow fashion. And another thing is there was a time when, in a country like Australia, most uh, clothing was manufactured here. And it's been outsourced to developing countries, China, Bangladesh, mm -hmm. obviously because it's cheaper. But what that means is that we're transporting a lot of clothing, textiles, across the globe, mm -hmm. uh, maybe sometimes by ship, but mm -hmm. probably a lot of times by plane. That results in a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. So how do we get around some of those issues? Do we need to start going back to manufacturing or producing clothing here and letting other countries produce their own clothing? Rebecca, that's one for you. Yeah, look, I think, as I said, we choose to manufacture in China because it does deliver an exceptional quality of garment. The reality, too, is a lot of the fabric mills are actually based in China. So even where companies move to other markets which have cheaper wages, you're still getting a lot of your fabrications made in China and 30% of a garment cost is the fabrication in general that goes into a garment. So the reality, I think, in terms of if we were producing goods in Australia, for example, the price would be a lot higher. So I guess a lot of retailers are driven by price and the price that the consumer is willing to pay. So there's no doubt, as you say, there is, I think, definitely in some areas, a slow fashion component starting to surface and I think for us as I said our customer certainly isn't about that fast fashion but there is absolutely brands out there where customers are definitely driving that. Again you know we have made a choice to send all of our garments on ship and not plain but again that comes down to the fact that we can because we're not needing to have garments in stores in seven days. Our customer completely likes to come in and shop every couple of months and she likes to see something new but she's not driven by that latest and greatest. So how long does a ship take? The ship only takes about 10 days to come out of Shanghai. We actually deliver into Sydney is where our warehouse is, so mm -hmm. that only takes about 10 days. So if you're planned and well-organised, there is absolutely no reason why you would need to air things. But you're right, a lot of companies do air, and that is just because they want things out here in a very short turnaround of time. I don't know if you can answer this question, but backstage we were saying that your sort of entry-level T-shirt yeah. retails for about $25. Yeah. If you were to produce that same T-shirt in Australia, Mm -hmm. with Australian cotton yep. milled in Australia, yep. fabricated in yep. Australia. How much would you need to charge for that to make a similar margin? We would be close up to $60, $70 Okay. And your consumers presumably wouldn't pay $60 no, for a T-shirt? not at all. Okay. Not at all. Okay. I'll give you guys an example. So has anyone here heard of the brand Everlane? Yes. It's my favourite brand and yeah. I am wearing Everlane tonight and I, I want to give you a pricing example. So this t-shirt is from Everlane. So for those of you who aren't familiar with them, they're a Californian-based company and they're doing a thing they like to call radical transparency. And this is why it is radical transparency. This t-shirt was made in a factory in Ho Chi Minh City. You can go on their website and see interviews with the garment factory workers. 
it costs 45 US dollars. Of that 45 US dollars, four dollars and six cents went into making this thing. Eight dollars fifty went into buying the materials. Two dollars fifty in customs and three dollars or something in um, shipping and logistics. That is transparency, and that is really when you think about it. Four dollars to make this t-shirt. That is low. That is really low. And this is for a company that is working really closely with factories and trying to make things very ethical and give their factory workers a decent wage. So $4 on a $45 t-shirt. It's something to think about when you're going down the path of, well, you know, how much does it actually cost to make things? And I dare say that we can't compare this to any other brand because I don't know any other brand that's doing that and telling you by the clock exactly what the costs are to make the t-shirt for me to buy it for $45. Just to the gentleman's point about... um slow fashion is that an oxymoron well no I mean I think that you can take it from two different standpoints slow fashion can refer to the idea of going back to the hand of the slow process behind making a garment or making a collection on the other hand you could look at it simply in terms of consumption so fast fashion is as you said speeding a garment from the design room to the shop floor in sometimes as little as a week but sometimes two days people can do that wow so that's the fast end the slow end is about literally slowing down that pattern of consumption and saying okay we're actually winding the clock back to seasonal drops now will consumer accept that that's a question slowing down the consumption of fast fashion. And that is something that the more I find out about this area, I've been working in it for about five years, the more I'm feeling that actually I don't want any more stuff. I think that we are actually coming to a place of fast fashion fatigue. I think that I'm not alone when I say that when I look at all the stuff I've got in my house and my wardrobe, it makes me feel suffocated. Mm. I hate the stuff. And I'm, what a fashion editor sitting here in the Gucci shoes in the stuff says, I hate the stuff, but I feel that I'm not alone in this feeling of overwhelm that we have too much, we're consuming it too fast, and you consume too much, you get a hangover. Okay, next question, thanks. Um, I'm not sure if people had seen a, a Four Corners a few weeks ago, which uh, showed the amount of clothes that goes into uh, landfills, which is pretty huge here. I'm just, well, wondering in terms of the kind of profits that are being, you know, we do live in a capitalist society which is very profit-driven and I think fashion in some respects is uh, driven by the profit motive. Uh, Now, of course, I wouldn't want to see everybody dressed uh, in the same suits uh, or same clothes. I think we've got to give it quite a lot of consideration. I'm... You know, I think good clothes certainly is is worthwhile, but uh, how do we raise consciousness of people uh, in terms of being conscious of ecological issues? And, you know, some of the things about local um, manufacture is is worthwhile. And how do we control, actually, uh, you know, what is happening in China or Vietnam? We don't know whether those people are, how they are exploited. You might get one picture, but another... In reality. Okay, so that's sort of two separate questions there. Um, We'll come to the issue of how do we know. We'll come to that first of all. But the question about raising consciousness, uh, we sort of touched on this a little bit at the beginning, didn't we? I mean, saying that it's not, in your view, Claire, it's not necessarily widespread. So, But as a panel, how would you think that consciousness could be changed and short of another Rana Plaza collapse? 
even though I think that we are taking the first steps, I think that there is also plenty of evidence to see that people are consuming from a more value-driven standpoint. Mm. And you see that. So conscious consumerism is the phrase, but people are looking for stories that make them feel good behind the products that they buy. And that is happening. So it's not all doom and gloom. I think we're, we are going that way. And it, and it can come from the manufacturers themselves, can't it? Sort of as a selling point and, you know, as they're searching for the ever more elusive USP, oh, yeah. that could well, be. And that's what this, the Everlane are a really mm. great example mm. of this, um, you know, they're millennials who set it up, aren't totally. they? I mean, they're young, a younger generation, guys mm. in their 20s. Mm. I think they had like a Silicon Valley background. They're real, yeah. they're entrepreneurs who didn't know anything about fashion, but mm. they've applied that kind of really innovative mm. business model thinking to fashion. Mm. And the, yeah, radical transparency. So it's like, why wouldn't we tell our customer every single detail of how the costs mm. break down? And there is much more more of a growing interest amongst global consumers. We've become so self-determined, I think, when you talk about in consumer behaviour terms. We're playing out our own self-identities through how we consume and I think there is a reaction now. There's a backlash. We're not interested anymore in accepting what... You've also got to understand the textile and fashion industry, you know, was founded on the Industrial Revolution. It comes out of the kind of 19th and 20th century industrial capitalist model, which, you know, invented mass manufacturing. So of all the manufacturing sectors, fashion really represents this. Mm. And in some ways it's been the slowest to respond, you know, like the consumer goods market, like the printers and TVs and that all of the manufacturers of those have been much quicker to respond to, you know, their producer responsibilities. Right. But fashion is now finally But is that up. just the case amongst the good burgers of Fitzroy and Carlton or is it actually the case everywhere else where people can't afford to spend 60 bucks on a T-shirt? Are we we sort of preaching to the converted here or is there actually a rise in consciousness amongst the people who go to Kmart? I buy my kids' clothes at Kmart Mm. because I can't afford to buy... Well, I can't. I don't even know what seeds practices are. Like, it's just, I can't afford thirty bucks for a t-shirt for my nine-month-old who's just going to stain it within, you know, yeah. two days. So, if we talk about rising consciousness, is that filtering down everywhere? And if not, what could change? There was a the recent study by Nielsen actually that suggested that I think it was seventy-three percent of millennials are willing to pay more for a sustainable brand. So, I think that is changing. And when we were researching and starting, not my style, we went and spoke to a lot of the brands, and the brands were telling us consumers don't care. And I used to get so frustrated in these meetings because I was like, they do, they don't have information to care about, they don't know, they don't understand, and it is so deliberately opaque when I went digging to try and find the information. So if I'm proactively doing it and I'm creating an app for consumers and I'm finding it hard, well, how hard is it for someone who might not have that time or interest or background in sustainability? Okay, so that's the second part of the question. How hard is it to find out about the transparency and the sourcing and the manufacturing of... It's getting better. So (laughs) I think one of the things that I would just briefly comment on, and we've spoken a little bit about H&M, and H&M get thrown under the bus a bit, in my opinion, as do Gap and a whole heap of other companies that I doing really great proactive things um, to make changes. You know who I want you to throw under the bus? The ones that say nothing. So the way we rate stores on Not My Style is we have this selection criteria of 22 pieces and we go on their websites. We don't ask them for the information. It has to be public facing materials. And there are so many brands. I can give you a couple. French Connection, Ralph Lauren. I could not find one piece of information across their entire website about their supply chain. 
throw them under the bus. Go and talk to them about what's happening behind closed doors because consumers deserve to know. And I think there's increasing understanding and, and brands are getting so much better. Even in the time we, we launched all the ratings and we went to the brands before we went public and we said, here it is. This is what we're doing. This is your rating. Sorry or yay. And we're going to be launching in a couple of months. Well, the brands came back to us and said, our website's just been updated. Oh, really? Uh, but we want that to happen. We want brands to be sharing more. So for us, the, if we helped them get to that point where they said, okay, before this app goes live, let's get some information up there, then that's great because it means that we have access to the information to make informed decisions. And I would just say on the consumer movement thing, one of my favourite things to look at, and you guys might know more about this than me, is food. So dolphin-free tuna. That was a consumer movement. People got all up in arms when they thought there was dolphin in their tuna, and that changed really rapidly. Cage-free eggs. They're not really even on supermarket shelves anymore, caged eggs. These things can change, but they happen incrementally. Consumer behaviour is a really, really tough one, especially one that really reflects our own identity. But I reckon it's happening. All right, next question, please. Thanks. Um, So I think earlier this year there was a parliamentary inquiry, which is still going on, into modern slavery and working conditions in supply chains. Mm-hmm. I think some companies like Adidas and David Jones voiced their support and there's been a commitment from the government that there'll be reporting requirements next year that are mandated on, I think, companies with over $100 million. I just wanted to get your thoughts or get the thoughts of the panel on what impact that'll have on the Clean Clothes campaign and, I guess, B, what is the role of government in this issue at all? Yeah, look, I think it's a really good focus for the government to have. I mean, we have a number of focuses we already have to adhere to, such as packaging covenants and all of those things, which are driving really great recycling behaviour as well. And every 12 months, we obviously need to report on that. And what are we doing to reduce the packaging that comes through our entire business? So it's not only uh, the supply chain, it can be in our stores, it can also be just in our basic office spaces as well. So I think that's driven some fantastic behaviour. And it keeps in the business, that conversation continually ticking along. So I think there's no doubt we choose to pay a living wage. Some companies pay whatever the the standard wage conditions are, but we choose to pay above that, which is called a living wage, to actually enable people to support themselves within that current whatever market is that they're actually working in. So I do think that government regulation is a really good thing and I think that it just keeps all of us, you know, having those conversations and continuing to talk about it. So, yeah, I I do fully support it. I don't know what the other guys think, but, yeah, I I do. I've just moved back from London and in the UK the modern slavery bill came in last year or whenever it was and I think what's interesting about it, so to adhere to the bill you essentially have to have a statement on your website that says what you're doing around supply chains and human trafficking. So that in itself is not a ton but it has to be signed off by your board. So you have to go and have these really proactive conversations around what are we going to say in our statement and any good board is going to say, well, what are we actually doing? So it's a really good step in the right direction. I think we'll see a lot of change and I I hope that it works this way in Australia, that this is the beginning of a much broader conversation to influence how these things happen. Mm, I was just going to... Well, just talking about the kind of government sort of regulation issue, I think especially... You know, one of my interests is the sort of textile recycling and landfill issue. And in terms of that, I think in Australia it's going to be needed and I think it's really important because this is a wicked problem and, you you know, as they say, you can't solve a wicked problem just through one solution. It's going to require all stakeholders to get involved and just, you know, the idea of textile recycling is going to require changes to, you know, how much tax does a waste management company pay when they dump stuff in landfill... 
we really need to see. So, so government I, intervention needs is absolutely. has to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Did you uh, know? I was going to say exactly the same thing that we know that we cannot have change simply by consumer pressure. Brands All won't brands. make the change yeah. on their own. Yeah. We need government regulation across the board for this stuff. I'm now obsessed with the pricing carbon. I think we need the government to step in and say our job is to actually regulate some of this mm-hmm. stuff that is trashing the environment and trashing mm-hmm. people and planet. All right, yes, please, next question. Hi, um, I worked on the Ethical Fashion Initiative earlier this year and um, I helped work on our source map, which basically locates where things are made and comes down to where a buckle's made and you can see exactly the location that it's made. Um, We know that manufacturing is closing in China and a lot of it is moving to Africa, so I would like to know from a brand point of view, how brands can locate that third party maybe um, in terms of a transparency point of view. Um, If you are still working with someone in China, how do you know they're not outsourcing to somewhere like Africa where maybe... So you're saying that that it's effectively being subcontracted without the knowledge of... Yeah, well, how do of the companies know? to yeah. okay? Yeah, yeah they it's, know it's getting subcontracted, but to where is? is that yeah, right? it's yeah. a really good question because yeah. that is absolutely a really key element that you do have to be across. So for us, we have people on the ground in the uh, markets where we manufacture, and they are actually out in the factories all the time. So they're actually seeing our garments go through the factory. and so they know exactly where those garments are being produced. so you you directly employ, Spotters, effectively inspectors. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Basically, production people who are. And actually... how common is that amongst the big brands? Look, I honestly couldn't say. I just want to go back to to the questioner actually, because in a former life, I actually um, reported from a a garment factory in Lesotho, which is a little country inside South Africa, and it was supported by the American government. And these were the only jobs going around for lots of women there. And they were very important sources of revenue for that country. And there was an act called the AGOA, which was a big thing in America, which is basically trying to help Africa through anything other than arms manufacture. So my question to you is, are you saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, that that's outsourced to the African continent? or, Or why are you asking that question? No, absolutely not. A lot of the projects that the Ethical Fashion Initiative works on is by connecting artisans with yep. fabulous brands like Stella McCartney and Mimco in yep. Australia. Um, there's several more. Yep. The good thing about the EFI is that they have their own system of impact assessment. So you can, you know, it's on a holistic level looking at the sustainability and the ethics of how everything's produced and it's all traced. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing. Um, I suppose if the exact same model that's been used in China for Mm -hmm. decades now in terms of the level of exploitation, the level of environmental impact, Mm -hmm. if that's just moved straight to countries in Africa, then that's not a good thing. But is that based on evidence of that or are you just questioning whether that's the case? there are countries that already exist in different countries. There's a big nervousness about the shift to Africa from from a regulatory perspective as well. And and just on the, the, you know, the locally made thing, you know, great if things can be Australian made, but we can't discount the wonder that the garment sector has done for China, Cambodia, Bangladesh in bringing jobs to people that really didn't have them, which is what you can hope happens in Africa if it's done Mm, well. Um, For a lot of developing countries or developing economies, yeah, the manufacturing sector is the entry level Mm -hmm. to them developing to them sort of you know being able to 
have infrastructure and roads and develop education and hospitals. So mm -hmm. it's... I mean, globally, the, the garment industry employs... Is it 60 million oh, or Oh, the number. Oh, uh, I think it's 60. It's an yeah. enormous employer mm -hmm. and mainly women aged between 18 and 24, most with children. The garment industry globally, we need it. It has been a huge source of income and economic growth and prosperity in all of the territories in which it has boomed. There are 4 million garment workers in, in Bangladesh, which is the second largest producer of clothing now and certainly as wages go up then mm. brands do chase the cheapest needle as we say but look mm. for cheaper alternatives and mm -hmm. I think that's where the kind of fear that when the garment industry moves in, in search of cheaper labour in Africa that's where mm -hmm. that fear comes in because obviously in less sophisticated territories regulation is less advanced but the questioner asked about um, was saying that she worked with the Ethical Fashion Initiative mm. it's an amazing organisation they are under the aegis of the United Nations and they're non-for-profit and what they do is hook up artisanal micro-producers in places like Kenya, Ghana, Burkina Faso mm. with big fashion mostly in Europe like Vivian mm. Westwood and, and here with Mimco. So there are organisations out there that are trustworthy, mm. that are doing wonderful work to bring better practices into these mm. places. So there is a lot of hope in this space as well as, as the grim stuff, I suppose. Okay, great. Thank you. Yes, down the front, thanks. I just wondered if anybody's um, across any technology where um, millennials are buying clothes on the internet rather than going into a store and taking a whole lot of garments into the change room to try on. And older people are also going with fashion brands that supply a magazine at home and once you get the idea of what your size is, you can order them and have them delivered to your house. And that's usually a good quality. So people are tending to not wanting to go into retail. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, is there any technology out there that you've seen using 3D technology or such that I can go into a change room and select a type of clothing and have it clothe me electronically, so to speak. So That's not I really can, an yeah. ethical fashion question. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. But ethically, as far as we mass manufacture and throw away half the stuff, like yeah. goes by sure. a TK okay. Maxx yeah. and Marshalls. You'd rather buy yeah. something that fits you perfectly that you're going to keep for years. There is yeah, so it'll, it'll get to a point of we're only manufacturing by order. Yeah, so fabulous. And it could be one of the solutions to our fashion waste problem. And there's yeah. a very interesting woman at RMIT called Kate Kennedy who's doing great work in this area of body mapping. And that is about bringing bespoke out of the luxury space into the world where we can all access it on mass. Wow. So actually that technology could mm. save I take us. Back, I, that was a very ethical fashion question. I completely <laughs> take that back. Well done. And that, but that's also, there's a brand in Sydney called Citizen Wolf who, you know, Claire and I love. And that's, they're not using a kind of 3D technology, but they're their customer wants to is willing to pay a little bit more for a good T-shirt out of a really lovely merino wool or a good organic cotton, and you basically go into their shop, you try on a kind of a prototype of a T-shirt, and you take a sort of order form, and you basically Citizen Wolf idea, yeah, yeah. Citizen okay. Wolf okay. is the name of the company. Okay. Yeah. Let's just take one final question, and then we'll have to wrap up. Yes, down the back, thanks. Uh, so my question is more about media. What role does the media have to encourage or support? consumer accountability like I would love to open up a magazine and know the grading of the product that you're spruiking or you're you're promoting that would be really interesting I think that's one for the uh, fashion editor at large of Murray <laughs> <Mark. laughs> 
I can't answer this from a Marie Claire perspective because I do, as you know, write about ethical fashion from my own perspective. So this isn't an official answer from my day job. But I do think that the media has an enormous role to play when it comes to education. Obviously less so when it comes to monthly glossy fashion magazines, which do a different job to the job that is done by newspapers or news websites. Generally speaking, your monthly glossy fashion magazine was designed and created and thought of in the first place to sell you a fantasy of art-based wonderment that would make you certainly buy clothes. But, I mean, look at the history of Vogue. It was also about transporting you with beautiful photographs, giving you something delicious to dream about. Are we in the, the space of investigating fast fashion supply chains? No, we're not. You would probably go to The Guardian or The Age for that. Do I think that it would be nice to open a magazine and see more stuff about the supply chain of each of the garments contained in each shoot? Yes. Is it going to happen? No. Really? There, there would be no appetite for that amongst the fashion media in general? There'd be no appetite amongst advertisers who pay for magazines to exist. Right. And that's just a reality. That's Maybe there could be. Yeah. Maybe in the future that is what brands will be asking for. I don't know. Mm. Why don't we ask Suzanne? <laughs> would they be into that? Yeah, look, if you were I... booking an ad, would you be more inclined to book it if I said to you, we're going to be radically transparent with each photograph? Possibly not with an actual ad. But I guess, again, it's that advertorial type component where I think as well we do need to be accountable, but then at the end of the day we possibly also don't talk about our message enough to the public either in terms of what we are actually doing. Sure. And I think it's an opportunity potentially for some of us to talk a little bit more about it because, as I said earlier, for me it was a whole new world going into these factories and seeing these amazing entrepreneurs and amazing workers doing beautiful garments and not really having seen how amazing all of that process Mm. is. But it's also quite a minefield for customers who have no access to that. Yeah. And that's an awesome ad, um, if I may, uh, around Black Friday last year by Patagonia. Um, who, if you guys don't know, is doing super great ethical stuff. And it was a picture of one of their jackets and it said, don't buy this jacket. And it was essentially kind of preaching about fast fashion, saying essentially you don't need to buy more and you don't need to be doing these types of things for for Black Friday. So maybe there there is a tiny, tiny little place, but their brand is encompassed in that message. So it's very difficult for any other brands to kind of reach that that point as well. All right, we've run out of time. So just super fast, if you had to give uh, each one of you a suggestion about where people could go if they wanted to be more ethically minded in the clothes that they bought, a resource that you would recommend, Jess... So obviously not my style would be great, but it's not in Australia. But there is an awesome app called Good On You, um, which does a very similar thing. So go there, take a look. They rate a whole heap of Australian brands and make some ethical choices. Rebecca? Look, I'll have to go with the girls' expertise on this one, so I'm happy to actually be guided by them. But um, certainly, yeah, I think it's a really good space and we definitely need to get some better messaging out there, I think, as a retailer. I can certainly take that on board. Okay. (laughs) I'd say go into your wardrobes. Yeah. Go and look at what you've already got and really care for it and, you know, learn to look after it and hand wash it and repair it and also go to Vinny's. Yeah. <laughs> More. I think I'm going to say go to Instagram because actually it's a good source of information. If you just tap in, I do it all the time, hashtag sustainable fashion or hashtag organic cotton you can actually discover lots of particularly smaller and independent younger Mm -hmm. designer brands that way and i find that really cool okay fantastic all right we've we've run out of time um i just want to thank all of the panel rebecca thank you again for stumping up and being the uh you know the one retailer here we've got jessica rebecca claire and clara well done
Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you